Well, good morning once again. Uh, if you are new or a guest, let me explain something to you. My name is Brian Clayberg. I actually serve on, on staff as uh, one of the worship pastors. I am usually involved in the modern services, and so I don't have the privilege and honor of being with you as much as I would like. This really is a privilege and an honor. Uh, our senior pastor, Dr. Burroughs, is taking some time off, preparing for what's going to come next, doing some study and some research and those types of things, and taking some time. And so for this month, you get to hear from some of us staff guys. So thanks for coming. Thanks for staying, hopefully, and uh, he'll be back with you soon. And uh, this morning, as we, um, as we look to the Word of God, I, I just thought what I would like to do is just talk a little bit about context, because context is very important. We've heard that context is key, and unfortunately, we, we take things out of context all of the time. We do this. Uh, let me give you some examples, some phrases maybe you've heard or maybe you've even used. Uh, one would be, be this, blood is thicker than water. And we've, we've heard that before, and sometimes we've even used that. And the context in usually which we use that is that the family tie is what's most important. Blood is thicker than water. But that actually comes from a proverb that means the exact opposite of how we would usually use it. The proverb talks about this idea that the blood, shed, the, the blood of the covenant shed is thicker than the water of the womb. And it talks about this idea that when you shed blood with someone on the field of battle, with a fellow soldier or something like that, that, is, that tie that you have is thicker even than the family. So it's completely different than how we would normally use it. But we've taken it out of its context and we've reworked it and restructured it. And for good meaning, family ties are very important. Here's another one. The devil is in the details. So you heard this one? This comes from a German architect actually who gave us another phrase, less is more. The devil in the details is not the original quote that he said. He actually said God is in the details, <laughs> but we have changed that and taken it out of its context and reworked it. Here's another one. Nice guys finish, what is it? Last. Last. Nice guys finish. I like this one because it's a baseball reference, and I like baseball, and, and this is a baseball. This, is, this comes from the Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers manager back in the height of the Dodgers-Giants era, and what happened that, that year is they got seventh place. That was a bad thing. Because they had some high expectations. They got seventh place that year. And the, the manager, there was an individual player on the team that was supposed to lead them to victory. And this guy was too nice, apparently. And the, the manager gave some blame on this, this player. And he said, man, he's just too nice. If he wouldn't have been so nice, we wouldn't have finished seventh place. And he actually said, nice guys finish seventh. That was the phrase he said. But Baseball Digest republished it and reworked it to be nice guys finish last and took it out of its context. And we do this all the time. You're about to see this happen, actually, as we enter into the Christmas season. This happens, without a doubt, twice a year, Christmas time and Easter. What you're going to see is you're going to be at home flipping through the channels, and you're going to come across these supposed documentaries that try to explain Jesus Christ. You're going to see things like uh, the, the hidden truth about Jesus. Who was Jesus really? These documentaries trying to, when, in a season when Jesus is supposed to be elevated and out front, they're going to try to explain him away out of his context, which is Scripture. That's the context in which he's supposed to be in. And we do this all the time. We take things out of context. And when we take things out of context, we run into some issues. And so what I thought we would do this morning is just look at some real hard context about who Jesus is. And obviously we could go to many places in Scripture to find this. All of Scripture is about Christ, but there are specific books and specific passages even that dive deeper into the context of who Christ really is, and Colossians is one of those. 
And so we're going to look at the preeminence of Christ this morning in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Here's what it says. Let's read it. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is known as the preeminence of Christ passage. It's also known as the Christology hymn. I'm a worship pastor. Of course, I'm going to pick a hymn. It was said that this was one of the first things that the early church would proclaim together about a truth about God and, who, and about Jesus and who he truly was. This Christology hymn. And it gives us some real good context about who Jesus is. And so what I want to do is just quickly just walk through this and point a few things out. And so if you remember, he started out by saying this in verse 15, if you're following along. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the exact replica of God and therefore bears God's image. And we've heard this language several times before. We know that as human beings, we bear God's image. We are image bearers, but in a different way, in a limited way, not in a perfect and holy way, because we are not holy. But Jesus bears God's image in a perfect way. The word used for image means likeness. It's where we get our English word for icon, which refers to a statue. When you make a statue, you try to recreate that exactly how it was. And this is saying that Jesus is that exact representation. He is that exact image of God perfectly. That's why Jesus would say, he who has seen me has seen the Father, in John 14, 9. Then it says at the end of the tale of that verse that he's the firstborn of all creation. And what we need to understand is that he, Jesus is firstborn, not first created. He is firstborn, not first created. We need to understand what this is not saying. This is not saying that Jesus was the first created being because some people will go there. Some people will take that route. Uh, there are, this is important for us to, to understand in this text because this is one of the issues that the Apostle Paul is dealing with with this church in Colossae. This false sect of teaching known as Gnosticism began to creep up into the church. And Gnosticism in its very basic form said that Jesus cannot be God in the flesh. He cannot be God. And there are a lot of uh, different religious views and cults even to this day that teach this concept. That Jesus is not God. Some of those would be Jehovah's Witness. Uh, Scientology would claim this. Mormonism would claim this. Jesus cannot be God. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll try to come to Scripture and take it out of its context to try to prove their point. And they'll say, look, because Jesus was the first created being, he can't be God. But when we look at the context, both in, in the Scripture and culturally what's happening, we quickly understand what's taking place here. 
in both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right to the inheritance. It was not necessarily the first one that was born. One example of this would be Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first chronologically, but it was Jacob who received the inheritance culturally. Uh, The nation of Israel would be another example, and the nation of Israel is called several times in Exodus and Jeremiah, God's firstborn among the nations. And we know that the Israelites were not, of course, the first peoples born onto the earth. But it's referring to, this, this, this idea of firstborn refers to status or position. It's a ranking. And what this is saying is that this nation, there is a, ple- a special place that the nation of Israel has in God's heart. They are firstborn. They are highest in rank, in status, and in position. And that's the same thing with Jesus. He is the firstborn. He is the highest in rank. He is the highest in status, in position. There is none like him. He is firstborn, not first created. Then in verse 16, it goes on to say, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I love this part of the text because it shows us that all of creation exists by him, through him, and for him. And I don't know if this, I think, is one issue that's hard for us to understand and to grasp sometimes, to think of Jesus as the agent of creation. That God would use Jesus as the agent of creation. I think it's easier for, for me to think of Jesus in terms of how he physically walked the earth. Like as a human being, I can, I can kind of grasp that. I can kind of see him interacting with people and the, the healings and the miracles. It's harder for me, I think, to think sometimes that that same Jesus that walked among the people that spoke words of life to them spoke the Son into existence. That same Jesus that walked on the Sea of Galilee created the Sea of Galilee. That same Jesus that brought life to the world would allow his creation to take his own life. That same Jesus that was raised on that first Easter morning, every single morning causes the sun to rise and bring life and light to the world. Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were created by him, for him, and through him. Therefore, he is highest in rank and status and position. He is preeminent. Then in verse 17, it goes on to say this, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the divine glue that holds all things together. Now, this reminds me of uh, something that we're going through in our small group right now. We're we're going through a study uh, called... uh, it's called A Trip Around the Sun by Lully Giglio. Uh, it, it talks about the cosmos and our planet and all these, how big everything is and how it's just so finely tuned and precise to have life and allow life to live. Uh, one great resource, if you've never seen The Privileged Planet, a documentary called The Privileged Planet, you need to watch that awesome documentary. It talks just about how privileged our planet is, how if one thing was off by one slight degree, life would not be able to exist on our planet. Even now in this moment, 
You're not just sitting there still and stationary. You may think that, but you know this. You're, you're moving at 30 kilometers a second, 1,700 kilometers an hour spinning around. And, and even though that planet is spinning, it's circling around this giant star and all of that is exactly needed to sustain life. In fact, uh, scientists tell us something about the fine-tuning of, the uni- of, of just our planet in our solar system. And they say we're, our planet is, is located in what is known as the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right, the Goldilocks zone. That if our planet was one degree closer or one degree further away from the sun, no life would exist on our planet. And Jesus sustains all of that. He is the sustainer of all of that. You think, you go from the macro to the micro and you think about the human body. And you think about cell structures and DNA and laminin and all these things. The Wonders of God, another great documentary you could look at on that one. And how our bodies even are so fine-tuned to allow us to live. And Jesus is the sustainer of all of those things. He literally holds, he is the sustainer of all things. He holds it all together. And the fine-tuning, it doesn't just end there. There are so many constants that have to be exactly right for us to have life including the force of gravity, the oxygen to nitrogen ratio, the distance and size of the moon, the force of electromagnetic fields, the tilt of the earth, and the location and age of the sun. All of it has to be exactly precise. Mathematically as a whole, it means that it cannot happen by chance. It screams of a creator, it screams of a designer, and it screams of a sustainer. Someone holding all of that together so that we can live. Jesus is the sustainer. And science is uh, something that we, science was never supposed to be an enemy. It's not. We, we gain great insight from science. The problem comes sometimes when we try to, to go to science to answer questions that science was never intended to answer. That's when issues come up. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say you're walking down the street one day, and on the corner there is a chocolate cake. I don't know. I know that's not an everyday occurrence, but hey, you never know your luck, okay? There's a chocolate cake there. Now, you're a little baffled by the chocolate cake. You're wondering, what is this all about? Why is there a chocolate cake here? Is it a chocolate cake? Looks like, I don't know. Who made it? Why is it here? And so what you're going to do is you're going to have this cake analyzed. So you're going to take the cake into the lab, and you're going to bring in all these scientists. Come on, I need information. You're going to set the cake down, and you're going to say, okay, come in. And you're going to bring a chemist in, a biochemist. And he's going to examine all the the, the cake and he's going to tell you and he's going to inform you about the structure and the breakdown of the proteins that make up the cake. Okay, and you're going to get all this data and then you're going to bring a a nutritionist in. And you're going to bring a nutritionist in and they're going to examine it. They're going to declare it to be chocolate like you thought. They're going to maybe give you a breakdown of the calories of the cake, the the fat content. They're going to tell you, hey, you shouldn't eat that. So you kick them out. You're like, get out of here next. And then you're going to bring the chemist in. And the chemist is going to do the same. They're going to give you the total breakdown of all of the elements that make up the cake. You could bring a mathematician in. Oh, they're going to give you all kinds of fancy equations on the circumference and the volume of the cake. And if you take this piece out of this pie chart and all this great geometry, you're going to know a lot about this cake at the end of the day. And you could just keep doing this and doing this and doing this. But do you know everything there is to know about the cake? No, you do not. You cannot know everything there is to know about the cake, and those people cannot answer that question because what they would have to do is go to the one who created the cake. And they would say, why did you make this? 
For what purpose was it made? Why was it left on the street corner? You can know a lot of information about the cake and still not know everything there is to know, even the most important things there are needed to know about the cake. And when we look to science to answer some of those questions, life's mysteries and those types of things, that is simply outside of the scope of science. It's not what science was intended to do. And here in Colossians, the Apostle Paul tells us both the who and the why, and it's Jesus Christ. He gives us that answer. Then in verse 18, it goes on to say this, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, we have that phrase, firstborn from the dead. It does not mean he was the first one raised. He wasn't. But among those who were raised, he is, what, highest in rank and status and position. But from this, we learn that the church, like creation, was originated by Christ and is sustained by Christ. The text says he's the head of the body of the church. And this metaphor, head, designates both Christ as supreme over the church, both local and universal, and also the one who brings life to the church. That's why it's so important that as a church, we submit to the headship of Jesus Christ. That's why we say constantly, in everything we must do, we must honor God. That has to be the focus. Everything else can come down from there, but God has got to be the focus. Christ has got to be preeminent in our church. He's got to be highest in status, highest in value. He's got to be the one that we go to first and foremost. Everything else can fall down from there. Because that's important. The metaphor is the head of the body. Now, you can, you can have missing limbs and still survive and still have life. But you cut off the head and it's over. That's why the metaphor sticks there. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the one that sustains the church as well. And then in verses 19 and 20, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of the cross, Jesus is preeminent because all the fullness of God dwells with him and he's able to reconcile all things to himself. This is another way in which Paul is going to fight against Gnosticism because they're going to say, Jesus cannot forgive sin. He's not God. And Paul's going to say, wait a minute, all of the fullness of God dwells with him. So yes, therefore he is able to reconcile all things. Think about that. All of the fullness of God. You think about any characteristic or, 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 or quality of God, Jesus has it. You think about God's omniscience, his divine wisdom and power, Jesus has it. You think about God's omnipotence, his divine power and might, Christ has it. God's omnipresence, his ability to be at all places at any given time, Jesus has it. God's immutability, that he does not waver, he does not change, Christ has it. And on and on we could go, all of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. 
And Paul is saying, if that's, if that's true, if all of the fullness of God dwells with Jesus, then Jesus, yeah, he can reconcile all things. He can do that. To reconcile is to make right what was wrong, to restore what is wrong as, as a sinful creature. My relationship with God is broken because he's holy. I need a reconciliation there. And Jesus is able to reconcile all things to himself. And I love this. The Christology hymn comes full circle. In the beginning, God created all things by Christ, in Christ, and for Christ. And in the end, God will reconcile all things by Christ, through Christ, and in Christ. He is the great reconciler. How is this accomplished? It says by making peace by the blood of his cross. That's how it's accomplished. That the greatest event in all of human history, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, will be the one event that will reconcile unbroken, sinful people to a holy God through faith. And Jesus is able to accomplish that because he is preeminent. He is number one. He will reconcile in Philippians. It says, it says it this way. He's been given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. That's Jesus' reconciliation. And some will take this text to mean that, oh, yes, you see, if, if Jesus is going to be the great reconciler, uh, he's not going to punish sin. No, no, no. Part of Jesus' reconciliation will be a judgment on unrepentant sin. And that's how he will reconcile. But it says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether you decide to do that now on your own volition, recognizing who he is for you, or you're made to do that, it's going to happen at some point. Because he is the great reconciler. Because all of the fullness of God dwells with him. People struggle with the exclusivity of Christ. Say, so can't, he can't be the only one. I mean, pastor just did a whole series on it. The authentic Jesus, the designer Jesus, talking about all of these issues. People struggle so hard with this, but here's the thing. If, if all of the fullness of God dwells with Christ, then why would there be another way? There can't be another way. If he's preeminent in all things, the fullness of God, everything was created by him, through him, and for him, everything will be reconciled by him, through him, and for him, then of course there's not going to be another way. He is preeminent in all of it. He is the great reconciler. He's first place, and he's the head. And my goal this morning... Um, is just to allow us to have a moment of, of seeing some, some real context about who Jesus is, this hymn that this early church would constantly proclaim together to remind themselves of who he was and who he is. And as we kind of just recap, he's preeminent, according to this text, because he's the exact replica of God, perfect rep representation. Because he's the firstborn, 
over all creation and the firstborn from the dead, highest in status and position. He is number one because he's preeminent because everything was created by him, through him, and for him. Uh, he's preeminent because he holds all things together. He sustains all things. He's preeminent because he's the head of the body of the church. He's preeminent because all the fullness of God dwells with him. And he's preeminent because he is the great reconciler that will reconcile all things to himself. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. Is Jesus preeminent in your life? Because he's preeminent in everything else. Is he in your life? Does he, ha does he have highest status? Highest position? Is he your fulfillment? Is he your sustainer? Is he your reconciler? Is he preeminent in your life? Is he your fulfillment? Listen, if all of the fullness of God of the God of the universe dwells with Jesus, then you aren't going to find fulfillment in anything else. And yet we turn to so many other things to fill us up. I do it too. Because we have some emptiness in us sometimes and we want to fill our lives with other things, but Jesus has the fullness of God. And so he's the, really the only one that can truly fulfill us. Is he your fulfillment? Is he preeminent in your life in that way? Is he your sustainer? If Christ sustains the entire universe and is the divine glue that holds everything together, then Christ can sustain your life. <laughs> Our lives are nothing compared to holding the world together. And he does that without a struggle. Some people think, oh, I got to get my life right before I come to Christ. Oh, please. He can just make it happen. He can, he can do that for you. He sustains the whole world. Some people are, we've all gone through seasons like this, great struggle. And we literally need Jesus to hold us together. You've been there. You know what that's like. And he can do that for us if we would allow him to be. Is he your sustainer? And is he preeminent in that way? Is he your reconciler? This is an important one. Let me restate that. He will be your reconciler. Remember, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's going to happen. But the hope is and the prayer is that we would see and we would exercise faith in who he is and what he said he was going to do, and we would have faith in his, in his death and burial and resurrection as the victory over sin and death and hell, and we would put our faith and our trust in that, and we would be reconciled that way through faith. And is he your reconciler? And here's the reality, and I know I've already mentioned this, but if God's plan is to reconcile all things to and through and for Christ, then Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's got to be that way. Because he's preeminent. Because he's first place. Because all things were created by him, for him, and through him. All things will be reconciled by him, for him, and through him. He is the fullness of God with him. He is the only way.
And sometimes we struggle with that, as we've seen, especially from the last series. And as we look at the culture around us, people struggle with that. And so what they do is they take Christ out of context. And they rework it. And they rework him to fit their desires, their wants, their needs. And they come up with a designer Jesus to fit what they would like to believe. And when we take things out of context, we run into some serious issues. And so the context this morning that we're working on is that Christ is preeminent in everything. Is he preeminent in your life? Is he your fulfillment? Is he your reconciler? Is he your sustainer? And my goal and my hope is always is just that we would maybe leave this place with just a, a heightened view of who Christ is. Because I know I often need that in my life. I, I need to ask myself these questions often. Is Christ preeminent? Because I lose sight of that. I lose sight of who he truly is. And in a moment, we're going to have a time of response, as we always do. And this is our time to respond to the word of God and how the Holy Spirit is working. And for some of us, maybe our response is just to stand and to worship Christ for who he is. As we read together from God's word and we're reminded of great context of who he really is, we just would worship him with thankful hearts of worship and praise. And that would be right and that would be true. And for some of us, maybe our response is, is, is to think about the need of Christ to be preeminent in our life once again, that we need him to be our fulfillment, that we need him to be our sustainer, we need him to be those things for us in a very real way, and maybe we've lost track of some of that, and that this could be a time of responding and rededicating or refocusing our lives to the preeminence of Christ over our lives. And maybe that needs to be your response, and maybe for some, he isn't your reconciler. And you've seen Christ in, in correct context, I would hope. And maybe you've seen him in correct context for the first time in some time. And you realize, and he is first place, he is highest in status, he's got the fullness of God. I need him to be that for me in my life. And you want to you receive that through faith. Uh, we're going to be up here. We'd love to receive you. We'd love to pray with you about that. And you don't have to come forward to do that. But we're going to be here if you would like to come forward. If you'd like to come forward to receive prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. Maybe you want to join the church and you haven't done that. We would love you to come forward at that time as well. But let's remember, Christ is preeminent in everything. He needs to be preeminent in our lives, in our church, for the fullness of of our joy, and the fulfillment of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for our time this morning. Thankful, God, that we can gather together. And we are extremely thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who would be your perfect representation for us, in spite of us and would redeem us and reconcile us to the, to the blood of his cross. Forgive us, God, 
for oftentimes losing sight of that. Help us to be reminded constantly of the need we have for Christ in our lives. How wonderful and awesome he is. And Father, it's our our prayer this morning that you would work as only you can do, that you would use these words and this scripture to go out and to do what only you can do with it. And we thank you for the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. And to him we give all glory and all honor and all praise, and we pray this all in that great name. Amen.